0: This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer
1: and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit.
0: We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy.
1: You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl I'll just show you outside a
2: little
1: bit
0: ah okay
1: oh that's a big storm yeah (laughs) yeah so i hope we'll get to leave today um, might be stuck (laughs) you were planning on leaving the island today
2: uh yeah we live on a different island we live in kochela this is lapwood um so we have to but it's okay you just go with the flow island life
0: Yeah.
1: Welcome back, dear listeners. You've tuned in to our new episode called Thriving on Mull. The Isle of Mull in the northwest of Scotland is the second of five destinations in our search for the plurivers in the fringes of Europe. We are driven by the feeling that the world is in a shift and that we need to learn alternative ways to live with others. Radical new imaginations for a planet in need. We are Eric Wong.
0: and Sophie Creer. And today with us in this second warming up talk to Mo is Suzanne Dalywall. Welcome, Suzanne. Um, and I must say at the beginning of this talk that my doorbell might ring during this talk. So I, I'll excuse myself already to the listeners, but I can't control that. So let's hope it, it will not happen.
1: Welcome Suzanne. We've invited you as one of our contextual guides um, in the leading up to our trip to Müll because before we physically go there, um, yeah, we want to gather different perspectives on the UK to get a, a sense of what's going on there. Um, especially also there is a COP26 coming up in November in Glasgow. Uh, and so our first warming up talk touched on the notion of regenerative economy, how to regenerate a local economy, and with you today we hope to learn more about climate justice, how to campaign for it, and how to make it more inclusive. Um, and, by the way, another note to our listeners about Eric, he's taking more the backseat this morning. <laughs> so, in case you wonder, where is Eric? Suzanne daliwao you are a climate justice creative. You are active as a campaigner and researcher. Uh, You were for instance part of the Art Not Oil Coalition, which challenged BP and Shell's corporate sponsorship in the arts. You've completed a Master of Arts in Social Sculpture in Oxford, uh, which enables you to develop creative strategies that address the lack of representation and also the ongoing white supremacy in the UK climate justice movement. And I'd like to point our listeners to a great article by you in The Guardian, uh, titled Why are Britain's Green Movements an All-White Affair? I love the colour <laughs> thing there. Uh, you're active uh, also in education as a lecturer in environmental justice uh, and a trainer in creative strategies for decolonization, uh, where you work to recenter Indigenous, Black, POC, people of colour, and frontline voices in climate media and communications. Um, and we found out about your practice through a post on Instagram, which promoted the MA Ecology Futures at ADKV Sint Joost in the Netherlands, where you are a practice tutor uh, since the start of this MA, I believe, a year ago in 2020. Uh, and so just to dive right into your practice and how you, you try to transmit it also, uh, we were wondering what's the last thing you had your students do in this course that you teach them. Mm-hmm. So
2: um, the MA programme is very individualised, so each student was able to follow a sort of a thread of their own. Um, So in that that process, it was about re-examining their own practice um, through this lens, through this intersectional lens, and also doing some personal reflection on their own relationships to power and privilege. And I think the special condition was that we were in the pandemic. Uh, We never actually saw each other physically. So also coming up with forms and ways of engaging that would work in the digital sphere. So the last thing they did was actually their final um, pieces. And a lot of those were different insofar that they weren't necessarily um, final artworks, but spaces to have conversations, um, spaces to... um, think about communicating forwards. So some of the final works were like an IG sticker um, to ask people to put their masks in the bin. Um, um, One person wrote a sci-fi that used AI generated from fake news from the pandemic. So there were such varied artworks but they all had to work online. And I think the shift was from illustrating the ecological crisis towards opening spaces for Questions and and conversations and being a bit vulnerable as well, like sharing the questions that you go through as a practitioner, sharing your journey of activism. Um, so that was the the final show, and sadly we didn't get to have a in person <laughs> exhibition, but I think that was really great for setting them up for thinking about being a, a global um, communicator in this time because we're in this for the. For a while, I think this pandemic situation.
0: <laughs> and was it an in, inclusive uh, group of students?
2: I think it was predominantly white, European-based, um, just because of the the nature of of where the program was, which means that we talked a lot about power and privilege, um, a lot about examining that um, in a really soft and loving and caring way, and not in a feel bad because you're white and middle class, but thinking about how that um, offers an opportunity. And also, you know, in the pandemic, people were feeling pretty bad about themselves, but then you can also open up understanding the power you have and access to internet, ability to create digital art and how that's needed um, in service of the frontline as well. So that was a great conversation.
0: Yeah, because because a part of, of, of being it a great header for an article, that um, white britain's green movement is, a, is an all-white affair i think that counts for, for the netherlands as well and maybe for all europe to be honest and um yeah it also makes me think as a white privileged kind of middle-aged man um yeah i do feel responsible for that and i see it around me and um i think we should talk about it in a loving way but what can we do about it suzanne i mean how how how, how can we change that
2: yeah, I think um, for me, that's why I switched towards art because it focused on the strategies. Once you've had that conversation with yourself, you've realised your power and your privilege, let's talk about the work because sometimes it can get stuck in the guilt. Um, so, you know, the redistribution of resources, um, the re-education of yourself and the work that is already happening and understanding how to situate the skills and the resources that you have um, in service of that. So a lot of it is unlearning, a lot of it is um, stepping back um, and checking your ego in a sense of how can you switch to being in service rather than taking the front step of that. And then also understanding um, when maybe it is more comfortable because of your positionality to the policing, say, for instance, so okay, that's when I need to step forward maybe to be a shield. Um, Yeah, and I think the biggest thing to go on that journey of understanding your power and privilege is to activate and unlock even more of your own power. (laughs) And I think that's what people don't realize sometimes. It's like you're going to find more power. Um, And especially because we are in also these times of Brexit, I think a lot of white people feel, you know, their movement's been restricted, their political power is being restricted. But it's um, I call it a, a recentering process. So you, we all have um, somewhere to recenter ourselves. Even as a queer person of color, I have to recenter myself about what I need to do to support trans um, siblings as well. So we're already, rather than seeing it as a whiteness in there, it's a recentering and it's an individual repositioning and as I said, to unlock, Um, that power and then the strategies sometimes are very boring sometimes they're giving money um, giving your skills giving your contacts so I think that's sometimes it's not as sexy as maybe people want it to be
1: yeah but the idea of redistributing resources that you said uh, bringing things back into circulation or once you are aware of your powers and privileges finding ways to make to kind of Redistrib- redistribute those. Or it, it, it calls up in me an image that we both like very much of you, uh, which is uh, an inverted megaphone. Uh, and, and this brings us to the first part of the talk, which is more your own positionality and your own trajectory. Um, you, you have this image of an inverted megaphone, which for you, I guess, represents the fact that you don't want to just send out, but you also want to be able to, to take in things, to listen more deeply. To the world so do, you, do you want to say something about that about how you came up with that image and how yeah. it feeds your practice
2: yeah so when i was doing the um masters of social sculpture in oxford i i was kind of one of the few activists and um, most of the other people were coming from an art background specifically from a rudolf steiner background and i felt like it was the first time i stopped because I'd been doing all this campaigning and solidarity and work. And I didn't realize that what I was doing was different in a sense. And I had to stop and think about the fact that before we even got on the megaphone, there were all these processes that were invisible. And there were things for me that were just like, I would just do them like consultation, to do consultation with the community, to ask what colors they want on the banner, what tone they want in the press release, um, what is their asks of this company that we go into. I was just, as a a Sikh person of colour with a British passport, I knew I had a a privilege in relationship to frontline Indigenous communities. Also, those are protocols, those are practices of how you engage in those communities. So, you know, I, I was found myself a lot realizing that those um, attitudes and orient, um, ways of working were a practice. And it was just something that I did. I remember just picking up the megaphone and it was just almost exhaustion of trying to explain it. And I just put it there and my collaborator at the time like just took a picture and was like, wow. And uh, it was like, the more we imagined into the image, it just started to take on this whole meaning. And then we actually reversed the engineering in the megaphone we just found it in youtube video to do that and i worked with an engineer and so it actually became a listening device so it actually you could listen with it and we ran listening walks Uh, and it was so interesting to go and listen to the ants and how it changed people's conversations um so it became a really nice um physical form to talk about these practices a process for myself to realize what I was doing. Um, and then also, it translated into this other kind of close noticing phenomenological um, practice as well.
0: Yeah, well, this, this example of the megaphone also shows how important imagination is or visualization is, as, or, you know, the idea, a visualized or materialized idea. And you uh, are an artist, so artist, image, imagination are really close together how important is it for you to position yourself as an artist within this field of activism
2: mm, for me it was a literally a survival tactic um, I within the movement within climate organizing there's something called the struggle within the struggle so that is the racism the sexism, the violence, physical and sexual violence that is experienced in those spaces Um, and for me I was being very generous in um, unpacking this with people and having conversations and people were resistant to that you can become the angry brown person and so when I started learning about social sculpture and got on the MA program it was a sanctuary for me to say that Um, investigating invisible forces like race, um, investigating the forms of activism, not attacking individuals, let's talk about this as a form question, literally saved my life. Um, I wouldn't have been able to process my understandings of how race was playing out in this space to heal myself um, and to continue the work Um, and also Witnessing some of the sites of ecocide um, like when I went to the Canadian tar sands, and I'll just describe that for our viewers a little bit. It's um it's a site of extraction in Canada where heavy oil is being extracted, it looks like the moon, it looks like Blade Runner and Mordor. Um, it's it's completely flattened. Um, and there's cannons that fire up every few seconds to stop the animals landing there. After I witnessed that, um, this was before climate change was well-known. Um, was I couldn't process the images of what I'd seen. And I remember once in social sculpture, we re-entered images with our eyes closed. And for some reason, it was the first time I could start to make sense of what I'd seen to communicate that. So there's a lot of strategies for me around um, imagination and art that connect to healing and um, working with ancestors. And the other thing is that art, for me, allows me to be an interdisciplinary shapeshifter, so that I can be someone who understands markets and is in a suit talking to Shell one day. The next day, I'm, you know, stopping a, a block at a blockade or something. So I felt like there was more space for me if I say I'm an artist to be all of those things. Whereas if you're an activist, it's like this 90s grunge perception of you um, so that's that's where I think my as well as illustrating the issues and coming up with campaigns and forms um it's it's very much so for me it's more about being open to those innovations and being able to be interdisciplinary like maybe you know now I'm moving into more digital media um, and if I call myself an artist I can I can go there um, as well as as being um yeah it gives you that fluidity and the openness to what's
1: mm. needed and fluidity is also a, a tactic that you use in your in your life since you've you've relocated to croatia you're now calling in from an island yeah. in croatia <laughs> right yeah um and you relocated uh, during the brexit and the pandemic somehow the two correlated the two events i think somehow and, and made you decide to move and not go back do you want to share a little bit about that because it, it reminds me of a voyage for voyage for life the journey for life that the it's 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 a it's of another epic dimension but the zapatista as you know are on a delegation uh, to europe 500 years after the colonization mm-hmm. of the, the aztec maya empire and they are doing an inverted voyage a little bit like your inverted megaphone <laughs> um to <laughs> not not a, a show or or tell us how to do things, but they're coming to listen and to share and to find out what we may have in common uh, between the mm-hmm. global north and the global south. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful trip. I think they're in your area right now. They're around Greece, Croatia, and then they're sailing uh, actually to the Netherlands in the in the coming weeks. So who knows? We might be able to meet them. But how 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 has your personal journey from the UK relocating to Croatia taken yeah. place?
2: Uh, well. I mean, well, I moved, I lived, was born in England, but I moved to Canada when I was 11. And so my family's in Canada. And then I came back to England because it was, you could not talk about climate change in Canada, 2008, 2009. And the racism to indigenous peoples was so deep that you could not connect the two issues. So then I came back to the UK. And so it was very strange for me to be like, oh, I. I'm carrying Canada in my heart, and there's this colonial relationship with Britain that somehow I'm in allyship to to disrupt. Um, And so it was that was that was a really fruitful period for organizing. And then when Brexit hit, um, my partner is is Polish, and I think you know people don't often see that that racism between um, European white presenting folks too. And so we came to the we went to the Amsterdam at first and I literally lived near the train station and I was commuting back to London nearly every two weeks. And I think also people in England don't realise how many people have left, I think. Um, and so at first it was it was good in Amsterdam and, and sort of finding our feet there and having it in both sort of spaces. And I actually got COVID at the beginning of the pandemic in London. And when we went back to Amsterdam, we were, you know, I remember being on the top floor of an apartment block and maybe not going outside for three or four months because the Dutch government was not taking it seriously. Um, And we'd been coming to Croatia for a few years. And I remember when I was really sick and I think it was, I was doing a conversation like this. And I remember almost making a wish on the show. And I was like, all I want is, my friend to catch a fish and have one of those days, and you're by the sea. and like, if I get better, that's all I want. And I was like, but at that time, you know, you couldn't even fly, I didn't know how it was gonna happen. And just making that deep wish, and and then we just decided to do it. Um, And we went and we left, and it was partly to physically recover um, by swimming. But also we didn't have much community in Amsterdam. Um, and also we, we got married in <laughs> Croatia, and that was part of um, resettling. And for me, I'm always thinking about how do I create like safety for myself and some kind of entity where I can keep doing the work? Because even though I'm maybe displaced now because of Brexit and there's all this uncertainty, I still know I'm keeping a level of privilege. So how can I make sure I can swim, have friends, be okay every day to do that? So um, <clears throat> I think it's something that I don't think the UK has grappled with, with its loss, um, with who is left. Um, but yeah, it's also disorientating to, um, but it's something I've come to be in a way. And that I think it comes to that shape shifting and being, that I've lived in so many spaces and the digital space means I can do the work wherever you know I'm currently working with a Canadian news organization and teaching in the Netherlands and speaking to you and so what are these possibilities opening up the more we actually stop still mm-hmm. it's um it's interesting
1: can you can you give this hybrid citizenship a name like can is this is this is this a form of trans citizenship <laughs> that you are? Yeah, I
2: think so. And I think so much of it is connected to the landscape. I feel a really deep connection to the landscape there. Um, and also, you know, yesterday we made some new friends who are from Venice who are living on the island. And it was interesting when we went out for dinner that there was there's this shared feeling of people who are carrying home with them wherever they, they go. to be honest I think the work grounds me in a way and the purpose and and my my partner and being feeling like this um because I've been working in this way so much where I'm wherever I am wherever the the stories and the issues and the work connect me to that longevity but I do feel disrupted and I definitely spent the summer I took I took a lot of the summer and I we have this there's this word in uh, Croatia which is fiaka which is this sort of state of, it's not sleepy, it's not doing nothing. It's an in-between where you are, um, you're conscious, but you're dreaming. And I think I was taken by that state this summer and I felt in a way I was trying to bring my my body, uh, my spirit back into my body through all of those transitions. Because I think all of us went through them very fast in the last two years. Um, but I think the sea, there's a, which is strange to feel rooted in the sea, <laughs> um, yeah. No, not
0: at all, actually. But isn't it also so that you know activism takes—it's very physical. So putting your body literally on the line. I mean, I just read a book by uh, Olivia Liang. Uh, it's called Everybody, and she she tells that she was an activist herself. So she was living in trees to to protect the trees from being cut down in the eighties and the nineties. And after 10 years of doing that, she was, her body was broken. So maybe you just need to recover from.
2: Yeah, I think also it's this idea of the body on the line and whose body And there's a performative action of people doing stunts sometimes to demonstrate what's happening. But there are bodies that are always on the line, like Madagascar is about to face its first climate change induced famine. So those bodies are already the line. So my role isn't necessarily to pull out a banner, maybe it's to activate um, conversation between climate organizers and food aid, So I think that's where this idea of, um, I call it kind of critical climate care, where we really have to abandon this culture of just performative actions and really widen out the scope of what this work looks like. Like I used to work for Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontier, the beginning of my work. So there's all these elements of aid, of care, of communications work, um, that get lost if we just think about that and I did do a lot of that action um, and it wasn't always safe for me, not just because of the police, but because of the, the violence I faced from the whiteness or, um, you know, wanting to do something less antagonistic or more absurd or um, surreal to get still get attention but not put myself into that interface with the police because um, my mom's going to tell me off now, <laughs> but, yeah, um, but also just, um, you know, for safety. So those conversations about diversity of tactics um, aren't always heard. So it becomes very difficult to put your body on the line. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, a lot of my work was always behind the scenes and, um, you know, creating the space or the, the container for those actions then it wasn't always my voice. I might be doing press or media or or convening um, as well. So I think that question of when to put your body on the line, whose bodies are already on the line, um, and if that's needed is a a really open question as well.
1: Mm. Well, that's a beautiful bridge to the second part of our talk. Um, We don't have enough time right now to go into all... The campaigns that you've um, committed to, but there was one that we wanted to highlight, which is about bodies that were put on the line. And unfortunately, bodies who, who don't live anymore. Um, it's the the campaign about with a, an artwork that takes the form of a bus, which you uh, curated and which you had sent to to Nigeria. Do you want to share that story with our with our listeners and and also which which tactics or how you then orchestrate that, which kind of, which actions do you then take within such a, mm. such an yes, action? Yes, so the
2: bus was originally created by British-Nigerian artist Sakari Douglas kam um, and the bus has in the back of it um, a cinema and a library, as well as the names of the Agani Nine who were murdered by Shao. Um, and so it was an education piece to bring awareness to um, predominantly you know, British people about that legacy and of that history. And then for the 20th year anniversary, um, communities in Nigeria, they asked for the bus to come back. Um, and that's when I um, platform was were holding that project. And so I was asked to, you know, be part of the logistics of taking that bag and organizing that on the ground. And to be honest, every day, I felt like this is, this is absurd. (laughs) This is an absurd action. And we always felt that, but that there was something in that absurdity to do, you know what, this isn't maybe the most practical thing to do, but there there is love in this, there is um, defiance in this. And for me, it was like, well, that's what's being asked. And you're asking for this to come back. So there was this responsiveness to that. Um, So the bus actually, first it fell in the river and had to be extracted and cleaned. (laughs) That was one journey of the bus. Because
0: for our listeners, Suzanne, it's a big bus. Like it's a real life-size, super heavy steel sculpture, right?
2: Yeah, like it's got a cinema in the back and big oil drums on the top. And and
1: embroideries also, right, on the side.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of like um, cut into the steel. Um, And so what happened then was then eventually we did get it to Nigeria. But when it got to Nigeria, the colonel who had actually been responsible for the execution of Ken Saruiwa was the customs and they impounded the bus. The bus has never actually been seen again. Um, But what we did was we quickly sort of thought, well, the absence of the bus, this this violence, um, we can use that. So we put that in the press, in the media, and we started to convene meetings with the Nigerian government saying it was about the bus. But really, the asks would be about shell, remediation of the land, cleanup. Um, And then I also started working with them. graphic designer, John Daniel, who sadly has passed on. um, And he did a lot of, like, graphic design for Funkadelic and record. Um, And he did these beautiful posters that were, like, you know, you can stop the bus, but you can't stop the movement. And these images started to go viral on Nigerian hip-hop, like radio stations and Twitter. So suddenly there was this generation that was, like, save the bus, save the bus, and it became way to get that story out um, so it's it was such a learning experience in terms of you know using the absence of something as present of working with the absurd sometimes and not always it doesn't feel like the most practical thing to do um, and then also being kind of twisting and using that opportunity that art creates for a conversation often you know um, access to um power so how do you open up that space for that and also intergenerational um, storytelling and 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 changing that form and and rapid response as well so it was um yeah it's been a powerful learning
0: it's a super strong uh, manifestation the the absence of the the presence of the absent (laughs) yeah beautiful
1: yeah beautiful well suzanne we've we've reached the end of this talk and as a as a wrap up I would we would like to ask you what your plans are for the for the near future and we were wondering in particular since we're going to mill and we've heard about this cop 26 that's about to take place in Scotland so we were wondering if you're involved in it uh, if there are any actions that we can promote what's what's your take on this cop 26 um on the
2: most facetious level, I always feel like the COP is not worth the paper it's written on. <laughs> That's my strong opinion because of the absence of human rights. There's no human rights. There's no indigenous rights. Um, and from my working, you know, we know 80% of the biodiversity we have to protect is under indigenous jurisdiction. It's not in there. And after going to many COPs, you start to understand what the COP is. The COP is a green market solution mechanism.
0: Suzanne, what does, does COP stands for? It's climate hmm, program or?
2: Yes, yeah, the annual climate conference where the, the apparently the globe is trying to come towards a, a, a way to implement the Paris climate agreement. So in Paris, the climate agreement was made so that we can keep the global temperature under 1.5 degrees. Um, but what we've seen is that year after year, we go to the COP and we're disappointed Um, we have to think about where we put our resources and where the strategies are. So I don't know if I will be going, and I think I mentioned before, if I am going, I'm usually told a week before, (laughs) and I usually do media work to support especially frontline Indigenous communities who are trying to both get their rights upheld, expose the false solutions that are in the COP Um, and also to work together with those who are already um, impacted by the the climate crisis. So I would say that it's important that we um, learn about the critiques of previous COPs, that we um, think about the resources that are going into this and the optics. Um, You know, why are some of the larger organizations going? Um, Sometimes those are just stunts that happened um, and what can we do from home? How can you um, organize solidarity actions where you are? Have you read the IPCC? Have you read the report that is under, um, under conversation? That's a great start. Have a reading of the IPCC with your community where you are and take your own position on it. I think that's a really big, um, important part of this. Um, but the biggest thing would be to have really enact some critical, critical reasoning, um, and your own empowerment of your own knowledge about what this agreement means as well. And really connecting to what are the skills and what does the work really look like being a climate activist? Maybe it's not going to all these conferences, maybe it's organizing food aid for, for front lines. So that's, that's kind of the critical conversations that I have, but they're very difficult to have within the climate movement because of this urgency thing where people are like, you're questioning it, just go, just do it. It's like, you have to listen to the, I mean, I'm a bit older now, like the ancestors of this movement, living ancestors, um, and especially indigenous peoples and peoples who have been questioning this process um, as well. So that's what I would say. And also the, do you physically have to go there, especially in a pandemic? Are there other ways to zoom in are there other ways to amplify what's happening on there can you offer your skills from remote to be there without being there again absence in presence
0: that's a beautiful wrap-up
1: <laughs> thank you it's been really nourishing thank you so much Suzanne, for the for this wonderful wonderful exchange really beautiful mm-hmm. In Search of the pluriverse is the first edition of the Travelling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute that brings together local makers and makers based in the Netherlands to learn together how formal and informal ways of knowing can reinforce each other in tackling ecological, social, political and spatial issues. The Travelling Academy is realized in close partnership with embassies in the participating countries. If this't a speech